0: Last week was the first in our new series called "Theology for Ordinary People," and I just want to thank you. I got amazing amount of feedback. It seems that this uh, is a good idea. So that, yeah, and so thank you for letting me know that. You know, I just want you to remember that theology, it's a word that we might want to run away from, but it simply means talking about God. It means knowing him better, understanding him so that we can relate to him the way that we should. And we've been following through, um, well, I'm using, here's my source material, it's Alison McGrath's book, Theology, The Basics. Uh, and it's a textbook, right? So it costs a little bit more, but I want to encourage you to think about buying it. It's not that thick. You would think a textbook is like that. It's not. It's only about this, this thick. And, and it really, I would encourage everybody to get into it, but I guess I'm going to give you the abbreviated version anyway, right? So uh, you could just be here every week. Last week, we looked at the theology of creation. What is the doctrine of creation that we actually understand? And uh, this week's topic is simply this, understanding God. Which actually is not only complex and deep and wide, it's not possible to completely do. There's a story of a Roman emperor, Hadrian, who was engaging with a Jewish rabbi, and the emperor asked to be allowed to see this rabbi's God. And the rabbi took the emperor outside in the midday sun. He said, stare directly. At the sun. And the emperor said, impossible. To which the rabbi replied, If you can't look at the sun, which God created, how much less can you behold the glory of God himself? John Calvin said, God knows our limited ability to cope with ideas and thus reveals himself in ways that we can handle. God's revelation is adapted or accommodated to our Capacity for reflection. And Calvin insists that God simply cannot be fully comprehended by the, the human mind. What we know of God is known by revelation through the, the Word and other places. And that revelation is adapted to our capacity as finite, you know, fallen creatures. Now, you remember last week uh, we finished with this doctrine of, of we humans being created in God's image. And that means, yes, we're created with an intellect and we're created uh, with, with heart and soul and, uh, and emotion so that we can deeply relate to God. But because we're not God, there, there will always be a limit on how we can compre- comprehend him. Now, that doesn't mean to say that this is some kind of weakness on God, God's part. It's a reflection of his you know, kind nature that he actually takes our limitations into account. As he relates to us. So when Calvin says that God accommodates himself to our ability, he he means that God uses words and ideas and images that we can relate to. In other words, God uses analogies as a way to describe himself to us for our benefit. And we're gonna look at some of those today. I'm glad someone's excited. Adam, Pastor well done. Good tip. All right. First, we must attempt to understand and describe God. We actually should, we should ask the question, just bear with me, but which God? Which God? And I know standing here in a church, in a Christian church, that answer seems obvious to everyone. But it's worth pointing out that in the ancient Near East, from which the story of Israel in the Old Testament is recorded, the culture was polytheistic. You know, that means that there was beliefs in many gods all around the Israelites. That's what they had around them. And this extended into the New Testament. You know, Paul himself, he he said, what about all these, you know, especially to the Gentiles, all these Greek gods that you have? Each nation had one or more that they would worship. So you couldn't just say God and assume that people would know this God that we're talking about. And that's still exists in many cultures in our world. And as Australian society, you know, we have become more and more multicultural, which has been which is fantastic and and but we've become more post-Christian. We Christians shouldn't always assume that the people we're talking to know the God that we're talking about. That's why the starting point in the in the theology of God starts with clearly identifying the God that we believe. And yes, of course, we know him to be the only true God. Of course I'm saying that, but it's not the case for everyone, and it hasn't always been that way, of course. It's why you often read about leaders in the Old Testament. They would identify God. You know, He was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He was the God that led us out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And the New Testament clearly links us to that same God, who was revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. We're going to go deeper into the doctrine of, of, of Jesus. Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to use inverted commas. We're going to go into the... Because he's real, okay? We're going to go into the doctrine of Jesus next week and make sure you're here for that. But first, understand God... To, to, uh, to know God is to look to Christ. You know, and this is not an analogy. I know I mentioned that word. We're going to get to those. This is the starting point for us in understanding God. To know Christ is to know God. Jesus himself affirmed that. We Christians clearly followed the same God as the Israelites did in the Old Testament through uh, his son Jesus. Here's what it says in Hebrews 1, just to give you that clear link. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. God promised everything to the son as an inheritance. And through the son, he created the universe. That's an important point. The son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. When he had cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. There is a clear link. The same God who spoke to Israel in many times and in many ways through the prophet speaks to us today through his son. This is important because it demonstrates how the Christian understanding of God is linked to the person of Christ. To know Christ is to know God. We must think of Jesus as of God. More on that next week. All right, let's look at these descriptions or analogies of God that help us, that he gives us so that we know him better and understand him better. Remember, we said that the full understanding of God is not actually possible. And so in his kindness, he describes himself to us in ways that are true. I'm not saying that these ways aren't true, by the way, but there are ways that we can relate to. So the first thing, and this is is important, and I know you know this, but it's important for us to look at it, is, is that we know God as Father. The very opening words that Jesus uses in his Uh, in the prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer now, is our Father in heaven. This image of God as Father, it's deeply embedded within the Christian faith. And it really helps to align our thinking with who God is in relationship to us. It's a fundamental doctrine of God. Jesus regularly referenced God as Father, but also for us, we, as children, Paul did the same. So what does the idea of a father mean and how close is our human understanding of father related to God as father? That's what we're going to take a quick look at. You've got to remember, I'm doing 25-minute sermons. You know, the study of God is a lifetime. So this is, this is very brief, but I hope you get something good out of it today. So some thoughts that I've got for you, they come from McGrath and some from myself, is this, number one, letter A, father's... Bring their children into existence. All of us have a biological father. You know, without a biological father, we we don't exist. And that idea of a father who was essential to our existence—it's really important. Even if we never knew our biological father, or or even if we didn't have a good relationship with our biological father, you know that that role still exists. They played a role in our existence. And I know for some of you, you know, that can be painful, and, and you have my deepest sympathy and care today, but at a basic level, even that pain points to how significant the meaning of a father is. Therefore, the description of God, that God gives himself as father is very important. It means something to all of us, every person here. You know, even though we need a biological father, God, as the creator of humanity, set up the, the, the process for reproduction. He knew about you before you were conceived. He is, in other words, our originator, the one who is responsible for everyone's existence. You know, without Him, we're not here. So that's the first reason that we can call God Father. The second one is that fathers care and provide for their children. So, when a child's young, sometimes not so young, he or she is dependent upon his or her father and mother for everything. I meant that in a loving way. And I wasn't talking to my own kids, just. But that relationship is close, you know, because there's a dependency. And that's the point. A close and personal relationship with. A God who is intensely interested in our well-being. In fact, we do need him for everything. He really does provide and care and sustain. Without God, not only would we not exist, but if we did exist, we wouldn't have what we need to live. All that we have, he provides. The key thought here is of a father who cares and I I just want you to hear that today I know you if you've been in church a long time you've heard that a, a lot but I just want you to hear it again the key thought is a God who cares for their child he sees each one of us in that kind of relationship and that's the analogy that God gave us to describe how he loves and cares for us now, I'm not trying to downplay the truth of this by calling it an analogy. It's true. This is He is our father, but God's using a way for us to understand him. We do that because it's the closest human, human image for us to grasp God's care and relationship and his love for us. And it's more than we can know. In fact, Jesus uses the word Abba when praying to his father. And, you know, translators, they've struggled with this word Father is a good word for it, but um, you know, it's, it's seen as really a more deeper and intimate relationship that we have. You know They can say something like daddy, but, but again, not quite that. It's a combination of the fatherly authority and, and very personal care, a God that we can go to and be vulnerable with. And Paul says to us, you can use that name too. Abba Father. When I paint a picture in my mind, I see a father who wants the best for his children. He disciplines us when we need it. He instructs us and gives wisdom. He provides for our well-being. He's always present and available. You know, human fathers can't always do that. God is always present and always available. He sets an example for us to look up to. He forgives and is patient with us as we grow up You know, and we learn to be more mature. He gives a second chance, and a third chance, and a fourth chance. And yet, He welcomes us to sit with Him, embrace Him, pour out our heart to Him. He wipes tears, He gives us peace and strength, and so much more that I can't come up with. The third thing is that God is more than a human father because the analogy breaks down when we limit it to the image of, of the human father. We can't transfer our limits as human fathers to God. Human fathers can and sometimes do let children down. They, they have limits to what they can give, but Jesus told us the father's love is greater than human fathers on the Sermon in the Mount in Matthew 7. He said, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, as in fathers, how much more will your heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask him? So it's greater than human fathers. This was in context of praying, but here's my point. We know that in general, the love of a father for their child is special and it's life-giving when a father is being A good father and what that means is that the love from God, whom we call our heavenly father, is more special. It's even more unique, it's even more life giving. And the fourth aspect of describing God as Father is this has generated some debate and and I ask you just to bear with me on this one. I don't want to see anyone walking out okay. But if you find if you find yourself disagreeing, but father doesn't mean that God is male. In our human sense, okay? Everybody good? <laughs> a male gender is very much a human attribute. It's true that both Old and New Testament use male language about God. That's good. In fact, the Greek word for God is theos. It's a masculine word. And most analogies for God throughout Scripture are male. Like we've said, father and there's, you know, there's king and there's shepherd. But a good question to ask is, does the Bible ever use female imagery to refer to the love of God for us? And the answer is actually yes. I've got an example for you in Isaiah. Can a mother forget her nursing child? Can she feel no love for the child she has born? We're talking about God's love for us. That's what Isaiah was saying. But even if that were possible, I would not forget you. God's love for us is likened to a mother's love and a father's love. Indeed, last week, we came to the biblical conclusion that we're created in God's image. Genesis 1 says male and female he created them. It doesn't say males are created in God's image. It says males and females are created in God's image. That means there is something about God, his image that is both male and female. It's a mystery, I know. But I think we have to hesitate to unquestionably say that God is male in the in the sense that I'm a male. Because females came from God's image, no more, no less. When Jesus came in human form, he was obviously male. But I agree with McGrath that at the base level, it's probably not theologically correct to simply say, God is is a male in the same way that I'm male. And to speak of God as Father is to say that the role of the Father in ancient Israel and today allows us insight and understanding into the nature of God and our relationship with him. But it shouldn't lead us to emphasize a human male gender. Nobody's moved, that's good. (laughs) The Old Testament is clear that mothers were also analogies for aspects of God's love for Israel, so there's no doubt that both fathers' and mothers' function is a good analogy for understanding God's love for us. God as father was a big one, so I'm now going to move through a couple more quickly. The second one is God as shepherd, and quite simply... I don't mean this in a bad way, but we're sheep. We are his sheep. And he is the one who watches over us and guides us. I was tempted to make everyone do a little bah before. See how that sounded, but we won't do that. All right. The parable of the lost sheep reflects God's concern and dedication for us. You know, he is not a distant or absent God. In fact, the shepherd tended to be regarded kind of as a social outcast in Israel on account of the enormous amount of time that he was obliged to spend with his flock, which prevented him from taking part in normal social activities. And so it comes down to this, God's total commitment to us, even when we stray. And the shepherd knows where to go for food and drink. He knows how to protect us from danger. In other words, we are lost without him. You know, we just we see it in, don't we, in our family and friends. They just seem lost when they don't know God. As his sheep, we recognize our dependence upon him. The third one is God is almighty. Have you ever stopped to think about what that means? Almighty God. You know, the obvious words that come to mind are all-powerful. We think of a God who is capable of doing anything. Have I said anything wrong yet? You don't think so? Okay, good. Although, is that all there is to it? Is it as simple as that? Is, it, is that statement that God couldn't do anything, the simple part of that statement, completely true? I've got you thinking, haven't I? Let's analyze that. Because is it possible that we've oversimplified that a little bit? In the book that that we're reading, McGrath asked some probing questions to get us thinking about this. So here's a question. He said, can God draw a triangle with four sides? I mean, the answer is obviously no. I know you don't want to say anything because you think it's a trick question and I don't want to talk out loud right now. But have we just placed a limit on what God can do? So as critical thinkers, we can analyze these questions and, and force us to perhaps restate simple statements in more complex ways. Perhaps the better way to explain what God Almighty means is this. God can do anything that does not involve a logical contradiction. In other words, God invented geometry and mathematics and order and structure and the triangle. So he, he can't do anything that's going to contradict himself, can he? not hearing any feedback, so we'll keep going. We'll see what happens. Well, here's another question. God can do anything, is what we said at the beginning. Can God sin? You can answer that one. Oh, no? Yeah, okay, we've got a mixture. The answer is no. God can't do anything against his nature. And yet we say God can do anything. All right, I'll keep going with these hard questions. Can God force someone who loves him to hate him? Don't answer that one out loud. Can God force someone who loves him to hate him? And we started with God can do anything. Well, the answer is probably similar to the previous one, but this time it comes down to the question, can God break his promises? Here's what it said in Psalms. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. You rule through all generations. The Lord always keeps his promises. He's gracious in all that he does. So It actually comes down to faithfulness and truthfulness. And the Bible's clear throughout that God is faithful and that, again, his character and his nature don't actually allow him to break his promises. Now, I don't think you're going to be able to walk out here with a very clear... um, understanding of what I'm probing us with right here, okay? Because it messes with you. And as I was writing this, I was like, that's not right, that's not right. I can't say that, that's not right. I'll just drop this point, and then I felt like, no, I want you to think about this. Theologians, they call this idea, what we're talking about here, divine self-limitation. It's a doctrine that says God freely chooses to behave in certain ways, but this is important. In doing so, he places limits in his divine action. This means that God can never be accused of acting outside of his promises. He acts faithfully. So within God's own self-imposed limitations based on his nature as a sinless and loving God, yes, within those things God can do anything. And praise God for that because we need that, we want that, a loving God that we can put our trust in, yeah? When we consider last week's topic of God as creator, we remember how big and powerful he is. But we must realize that God's power is not symbolized by a sword. Talking about Almighty, you know, it's not symbolized by a sword or a gun. Our God's symbol is the cross. It doesn't make sense to our world. When we say Almighty God, we think in human ways, we need to think in God's ways. It's the same reason why a lot of the Jews in Jesus' time, they they were waiting for their Messiah. He was going to defeat the Romans and end the occupation. A cross means defeat, doesn't it? It means shame, and yet that is what God chose. To understand the cross is to really understand God. That's where we go when we want a deep understanding of the God we worship. There's a great quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He says, God lets himself be pushed out of the world onto the cross. He is weak and powerless in the eyes of the world. And this is precisely the way, the only way in which he is with us and helps us. The Bible directs us to God's powerlessness and suffering. Only the suffering of God can help. And he would know. He wrote this from jail. And then the Nazis took his life. Our almighty God is not a tyrant. Our almighty God chooses to stand alongside people in our powerlessness. Like it's flipped upside down. And it was in that act of powerlessness that God's power was revealed. Do you see it? That's what the cross represents. As Christians, we need to be careful not to associate almighty God with a worldly view. We we shouldn't transfer human concepts of might and power to God Through Jesus, he has shown us how he displays his might. Out of love, he defeated sin and death and saved us through the power of his mercy and grace. That's our almighty God. That's bigger than a military defeat or or victory. That's bigger than defeating the Romans. That's bigger than defeating the tyrants of the world with military might. Every one of God's promises has shown him to be faithful and trustworthy. There will be a day when tyrants will be brought to justice. But here is the thing the biggest tyrant, the one that causes the most damage, the master of lies, Satan, has already been dealt a mortal blow on the cross, not with a sword. And he's been staggering around like a wounded man for 2,000 years, swinging his sword wildly, doing as much damage as he can. But we know how it ends. Satan loses, God wins, and so do we, because he is almighty. The almighty God, our shepherd, our father, that's how we describe him today. Of course, I've only just touched on it. But I want you to know he's also a personal God. John 3.16 says this. I think I'm getting some extra sermon points given to me here. (laughs) See if I can read the scripture. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only son for you and for me that we may not perish but have eternal life. That's the almighty God that we are following and worshipping. If we believe in him and follow him, he will forgive our sins, we'll be saved and we'll have eternal life with God. I want to encourage you this morning to consider your relationship with God. Is he your father? Can you say that? Can you you say, yeah, he's the shepherd in my life. He guides me. He, He sustains me. He forgives me. I want you all to Um, And I want to encourage you all this morning to renew that connection with the Lord, with our God. Would you pray with me now? Uh, Loving Heavenly Father, and we say, Father, knowing that you love us better than any human father ever can that you care for us better than any human father ever can. And we thank you that that's the God that you are. Almighty God. Died for us on the cross. And we thank you that you sent your son Jesus. And we thank you, Jesus, that, that you showed us the way. We thank you that you would die and rise again for us. And so this morning, we, we choose to worship you. But God, I pray for anyone this morning who's just struggling to, to know you, struggling to connect. I ask, God, that you reveal yourself to, to this person this morning So we worship you, Jesus. You are worthy of all our praise.